This is Eat, You'll Feel Better, a podcast about the food mood connection. I'm your host, food journalist Mary Beth Albright. And first thing, quick plug up front that I'll be at South by Southwest next week as a featured speaker talking about, of course, food and emotional well-being. So if you'll be there in Austin, come and see me and come early because humble brag, last year my featured presentation filled up and they had to turn people away. So if you can be there, would love to see you and come up and say hi after. Today we're discussing the power of eating together and something that I call the feast paradox. And last year when I was at the Washington Post, they ran an excerpt of my book, my book called Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. There's another plug. That's the, that's the only other plug in the entire show, I promise. But they ran an excerpt of my book, which had just been published back then. And it's interesting because when you write a book and put it out into the world, you really have no idea how it will be received and what people will hook onto and what will be meaningful to different people. There's just like, there's no algorithm for that yet. I mean, make up that algorithm and that's, you'll, you'll never have to work again. But, um, the the writer Malcolm Gladwell has written about this phenomenon, and one of his my favorite podcasts is his um, revisionist history. By the way, if you're looking for another great listen, um, so Malcolm Gladwell has said many times that when he wrote the book Outliers, he never expected people to really hone in on and repeat almost as a mantra now that the research that he mentioned showing that between 10,000 hours and 50,000 hours of practice is a requirement to master something, whether that's music or cooking or a sport or, you know, and being being a painter, whatever it is, there's research that between 10,000 and 50,000 hours is required um, as practice to master anything. That it could be music, it could be cooking, it could be a sport, it could be art. Um, but when Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it, about that 10,000 to 50,000 hour research, that research had been around for a long time, since the 1970s. And so it's interesting, people are always saying like, oh, Malcolm Gladwell did research and it's like, no, he, and he he says this constantly that I didn't do that research, I'm bringing it together as a writer. Um but but the 10,000 hours thing is what people remembered. Saying that he was arguing that talent doesn't matter, which wasn't part of his argument at all. Um, but people really wanted to glom onto that 10,000 number, right? And he brought the research up as a larger point that no matter how much genius you have naturally, you need to work at it. That no one comes out of the womb as a master. It's something you have to cultivate. So his point in the book was actually opposite of what people were saying that his point was. Anyway, the excerpt from Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being, my book that was published in the Washington Post, the excerpt was about the science behind an interesting paradox in the food mood connection science. And that is research showing that people who eat together people who eat in groups with other people as part of their regular eating pattern, which is how humans have eaten for millennia, P.S., but people who eat together enjoy better health outcomes 
than people who eat by themselves, who eat alone as an eating pattern. The paradox is that when people eat with others, they on average eat more food than if they were alone. And you can probably think about that anecdotally. If you're at a big dinner with lots of people and lots of food, you might eat more than if you were alone. Um, And the research shows that. But there is something about that communal nature of eating, of feasting, that just compels us to participate, to eat. So people who eat with others tend to eat more, and they tend to have better health outcomes. And this is a paradox because often we associate eating less food with better health. And that's, of course, part of it is our collective diet culture mentality that equates extreme restriction with better health. But in addition to that, there's also separate research around specifically calorie restriction and very low calorie diets leading to a longer life, greater longevity. So therein lies the paradox, more food, better health. How does that work? So some researchers believe there is a protective quality or a health enhancing quality to eating communally. And I'm not talking about some kind of like magical thinking, like when you eat with other people, your body has some sort of metabolic purity to it. Not at all. But we need to remember that the body is more than a container for parts. The body is an ecosystem and everything that happens in and around it can contribute to its health. Just like, as we always say on this podcast, flavor is created in the brain. So everything that happens around the food that you eat can contribute to how much you enjoy it. And we see examples of people eating communally to try to create bonds all over our modern world. Think about diplomacy, when leaders go to other countries to create or confirm bonds, and there's always some type of a big celebratory meal, right? Everybody sits around and eats together and talks about how great our countries are together in diplomacy. Or think about, in a very basic way, just the very human default that celebrating accomplishments or birthdays or death, it it all happens around food. Food is a time-proven way to bond with other people, to create bonds with others. And for millennia, for thousands and thousands of years, humans often couldn't eat without being around other people, right? We've we've inverted what we used to do. We used to eat with other people all the time, and now we're increasingly, every time there's a survey taken, people are eating alone more and more often. Um, And if you're hunting and gathering, Um, whoever, you know, thousands of years ago, whoever had the luck of actually killing that animal needed other people to help turn that animal into a meal, whether that's carving or cooking or hauling or drying, curing, whatever it was. So eating alone wasn't the kind of option that we have today. And there is actually an anthropological theory that when humans eat protein, there is an indication to our brains to act more communally. And when we go heavier on carbohydrates, we act more in our own self-interest. Now, this is a theory that is based on a much-discussed study, uh, science, uh, research science, about how protein and carbohydrates affect our social behavior. And that research shows that there is a measurable impact 
and a measurable impulse to act in a communal interest rather than self-interest when our meals are more protein heavy. Um, and that's a whole different episode, which we'll probably do. But um, you know, the 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 anthropology that's behind it, the 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 modern um research that's behind it, I presented all of this science in my book, also because we have a loneliness epidemic in America. And just before I got on to record this episode, I, I was glancing at an article. I can't wait to go back and read. Um, it's in the Atlantic that between tw- 2003 and 2022, so that almost 20 year period, American men reduced their average hours of face to face socialization by 30%. I mean, almost a third. That's shocking. And it's bigger than men, of course. Um, it just happened to be men that were polled for this for this study. But um, and there are many ways to be alone and still be bonded with others still through technology, um, as we all know now that technology that wasn't available in two thousand three. But this is still a huge, significant decline. Um, so it's not just a loneliness epidemic that we're talking about. It's it's some kind of social crisis that we're in, and. This was the section of my book, the eating together section, that was excerpted in the Washington Post. And what was so interesting to me is how many comments, I know, I know, don't read the comments, right? But I really like to hear from people about their food mood experiences. But many of the comments were people saying that they enjoy eating alone. And some were passionately expressing that they have no one to eat with which I absolutely get as someone who lives alone part of the time. And I also enjoy eating alone sometimes. That's not why I'm bringing up the comments. I'm bringing up the comments because we, I include myself, we so often read something that says something is good for you, right? And then we think it means we have to do it all the time, that it's all or nothing, that you can never eat alone again. And that's very often in science, just not the case. As with the 10,000 hour study, there are other things going on. Humans are ecosystems. There isn't a magical thing that happens to food when you'll eat with other people, just as there isn't something magical about the number 10,000. But practicing a lot of hours or making a point of being around other people, prioritizing that human connection those are both habits that are associated to getting you where you want to be, whether that is mastery of a subject or whether that is having greater emotional well-being. You don't have to eat with someone else every single meal to have an effect of eating with other people, just as you don't have to eat kale at every single meal to get the benefits of kale when you do eat it. And look, as I said, I love eating alone. There is no judgment of what I'm eating in a world that is full of food judgment. And I can sort of sigh and relax into it in a way that I just can't at a dinner party. And once I I had this, um, I had a meal with Danny Meyer, the restaurateur, famously of Shake Shack, but also of other many fine dining restaurants around the country. And he, I mentioned this to him, uh, the science, and he agreed with me about the importance of eating together and followed it up by saying that the biggest compliment that anyone can give him is going to one of his restaurants alone 
because that shows that you really want to be there, right? And so we live in this both and world. Yes, it's important to eat with other people. Yes, sometimes you want to eat alone. All of these things are true. Eating together as a pattern is associated with greater health. And eating alone can be a source of great pleasure. You don't have to eat together all the time to create bonds with people. That said, it is a time-tested way to bond with people to do it over food, like tens of thousands of years tested. Science can't tell you exactly how many meals to have with other people each week to get a benefit in the same way that science can't tell you an exact number of hours that are required for mastery. I mean, that original research said 10,000 to 50,000 hours. I mean, that's that's a big gray area in between. Um, and other things matter, even when you practice for 10,000 hours, such as natural ability, again, because humans are ecosystems. And look, food and health are not the only places where nuance is lost in the world that we live in. Uh, it's not the only place that we hear that something is good for us and then we feel a need to compulsively do it all the time all the time to get some benefit. But food tends to be a particularly fraught area because there's so much baggage surrounding food for people who have incredible access to it. So this week, for the one small thing you can do to enhance your food mood connection, eat one meal or even a snack with another person, a meal that you were going to eat alone. Just go ahead and do it with another person. Do it when it makes sense for you and see how it feels. You don't have to force it, but if there is an opportunity like eating at your desk versus going into the lunchroom, um, that kind of thing, just take it and see how it affects you. I'll share that for me this week, I'm going to start doing what I've called Sunday suppers again. Um, years ago, I used to have people over on Sunday nights for just very simple early suppers. And it was a great way to cap off the weekend, to sort of share my Sunday scaries. It was almost like a talk therapy with friends, right? And just regroup in a lovely cocoony way before the week. And sometimes, if I was overwhelmed with other things, I would order it from a restaurant. And that's that's okay. I mean, a restaurant near me in DC during the pandemic sold an entire side of cooked blackened salmon ready to eat. And it was so fantastic. And I would just make, you know, rice and a salad and that's supper, right? Um, it doesn't have to be made by you all the time. But so anyway, I'm having a Sunday supper this coming weekend. I haven't had one in a long time. And my son will be home on spring break. And, you know, I, I might do it again next week. I'll do it this Sunday. I might do it again next Sunday. Uh, okay, not next Sunday because I will be at South by Southwest. But at, the point is I'm, I'm not committing to doing it every single Sunday. I'm just going to say this Sunday I'm going to see, I'm going to do it and see what happens and not fall into that trap of black and white thinking that I'm going to start doing everything perfectly starting right now. Um, because that's not just how life works. And um, I'm going to have my Sunday supper and I'll report back. Um, and hopefully you will do the same. I'm Mary Beth Albright. And until next week, let's remember that choosing what you eat is always a privilege. Bye for now. <laughs>